0: Hey, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of The Stone Table. My name is Travis, and I am the teaching pastor at Baylife Church. Hi, Travis. Hi, Mickey. <laughs> you you just ruined the, Sorry. the intro. <laughs> That's okay.
1: uh, I'm Mickey, and I am a worship coordinator here at Bay Life Church. <laughs> I, I don't know why I did that. Uh, I just kind of felt like messing with you.
0: It's okay. I You know what? I appreciate the break-in routine. Yeah. That's a nice thing.
1: It's good sometimes.
0: Speaking of break-in routine, this should be a debrief episode, but We've- it's not.
1: Been breaking our routine. Yeah. So sorry, guys. If you've noticed, today is not a debrief.
0: No, it's not. <laughs> it is an interview, and we'll 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 double down on the debrief we in, will. A yes, yeah, in a we'll, couple weeks. Yes, in a couple
1: weeks, we will debrief. Four, four interviews. Yes, which we are so thrilled about. It's going to be great.
0: That may be our first podcast that breaks an hour. It, it be, might. A, it may might be a marathon.
1: It might be the one.
0: Yeah. So today, we are talking with our friend Jay Kim and are super excited about the conversation that we got to have with him via Zoom. Jay is a pastor out in California at Vintage Faith Church. Church. He is also an author and curator at the Regeneration Project, and he is a co-host on the Regeneration podcast, which and is
1: really good. It is by really the way. good. Yeah,
0: I've been following the Ministry of Regeneration, which is kind of aimed towards young adults and mm-hmm. next generation discipleship and and theology and mission. I've been following them for a number of years, and yeah. that was kind of how I found out about Jay's book that was just recently released called Analog Church, which is primarily what we talk with them about in this interview.
1: Yeah, so the conversation that we have with Jay today pretty much revolves around the church and our use of technology and how we can do it wisely and what that looks like for us as we look to invite people into our churches and into uh, just our communities and invite people to be a part of a really robust and rich faith and how we can leverage the tools that we have without uh, having them be the ultimate thing that we use, right? right? I mean.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate Jay's kind of even-handed approach to technology. He's not saying yeah. all technology is bad and all of it's evil. And and certainly, we, we kind of talk about it, especially as it relates to our present moment where so many mm-hmm. of us are still quarantined and... And we need technology. Right. But he also wants us to think about it and not use technology uncritically and and not just dive headlong into the latest social media platforms and trends and gadgets and gizmos. And so I think Jay is a really thoughtful guy.
1: Very well-rounded too. Absolutely. The argument that the the book poses is very, very uh, compelling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. His book is fantastic. I feel like it's named a lot of things I've been feeling Yeah. and being able to talk with Jay about what it looks like to engage technology wisely in our current moment and in the future life of the church, has been something that was really sharpening for yeah. us. So I think it's going to be a really helpful interview as you listen.
1: So with that being said, let's get right into our interview. For Bay Life Church, I'm Mickey. And I'm Travis. And this is The Stone Table.
0: So Jay, mm-hmm. this is our official of uh, our... <laughs> This is our first official time meeting you, and uh, we're we're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, man. Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: So in kind of just getting ready for this, uh, I just pulled up your biography on your church website, and on the biography, it mentions that you spent your 20s playing in unsuccessful bands. (laughs) Yes, Uh, very,
2: very extremely mediocre local (laughs) indie bands.
0: So, uh, that was my twenties too, was playing in oh, nice. un- unsuccessful, like punk <laughs> hardcore band. So I-, I need to ask you at least a little bit about that. Cause I feel like okay. we're kindred spirits in that regard. So, <laughs> so what kind of music were you
2: playing? How did you kind of get involved in, in that whole thing? Yeah, that's a great question. We, uh, I-, I don't know the best way to explain it. I guess we were like, if, I don't know if people know these bands, but if like, uh, Cigarose and thrice had a baby that sounds that would have been, perfect, yeah. That yeah, that would have been us, except like not as good as that sounds, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like yeah. that would have been kind of the intersection where we would have landed, yeah. So, super kind of, we were really into ambient ethereals, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, sure, uh, the cigarose big, big thing, well type things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then also, um, probably a little bit more aggressive on the thrice edge of things, okay. And, uh, yeah, like Manchester Orchestra, bands like that. Right. Like, those are the bands we were doing. So there you go. Yeah. What yeah. what about you? What how would you describe your band? Yeah, so I was
0: in like a hardcore punk band that was maybe in the vein of like turning point and strong arm. So um, kind of that yeah. the early like spirit-filled stuff, a little bit of focal point influence. Um so that was that was our thing. And then I was also in an indie band that I would say was basically a combination of like Jimmy Eat World. Jimmy Eat World <laughs> and like Jealous Sound Worship. I don't know if you've yeah. heard that band before. They're like a yeah. California band. Um,
2: I love Jimmy World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's cool. The guy, um, a dear friend of mine, Dan Kimball, who I serve alongside, is uh, really good friends with the Jimmy Eat World crew oh really
0: oh, cool. okay yeah, yeah that's awesome i know but zach zach um, lind is uh i think he's yep. an episcopalian um, yeah 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 yeah, so, yeah which,
2: zach is the guy that he's closest with yeah well, that's so
0: cool. cool yeah well that's okay. that's hey. already man we're already off to a great start um <laughs> so uh, yeah i that's awesome i i know it was a super formative time for me uh just playing and touring and meeting people in a, in a lot of different backgrounds just playing yeah. in punk music Uh, And I think from kind of reading your, your story as it's on your kind of on your church website, it seems like that was a formative time for you, even if it was kind of a challenging season of life for you.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My twenties were interesting. I, I grew up in the church. Uh, My mother still to this day is like one of the most passionate Jesus followers I know. Um, And so I was one of those kids who was at church like three times a week, you Mm. know, when I was a kid just for every youth group thing. And, Uh and it was awesome. Like it was this incredibly, um, it became home in a very unique way. I, uh, I had no siblings, Um, My dad was not around. So it was just literally me and my mom. Mm -hmm. And my mom worked two, three jobs at a time when I was growing up just to make ends meet. So church really became home for me. You know, that became family. Um, But then in my 20s, yeah, I went through what is now sadly a very... Typical sort of deconstruction phase where I read like half a philosophy book and thought I knew everything there was to know and threw everything out, you know, through my entire, the faith of my childhood all out. It's like, man, there's no way this is all rubbish. And, um, but through relationships, some guys who really cared about me and poured into me, um, and never gave up on me finally in my early twenties, uh, like my third year of college, um, started making my way back to Jesus, and I would say probably committed my life to following Jesus faithfully for the first time mm. in my early 20s. And uh, music was a big part of that. I played music throughout mm-hmm. that entire process, and then obviously the music, the content of the songs, changed. Sure, you know, yeah. as I made that journey. So, which I'm, I'm sure you can relate to mm-hmm. in, in some ways. So, sure. yeah, there you go. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. And I know so many of us have kind of gone through that, especially in our younger years. I know so many of us kind of go through that experience, sadly. But it is so great that you found your way back. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how your journey influences the work that you do now. So you are Mm -hmm. very involved in the Regeneration Project. And Mm -hmm. I've had the privilege of looking through pretty much your entire website. I actually signed up for your newsletter because- This morning, right? Yeah, today. (laughs) um, And I just, I love the work that you do there because you, you take theology and mission and, uh, just the church and equip people to lead that who are in the next generation. So clearly it's a passion of yours. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about how your experiences have shaped the work that you do right now.
2: That's a great question. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. You're, you're exactly right. You're spot on the, um, my journey. I think this is true for most people. Mm -hmm. Uh, my journey absolutely has been formative in terms of shaping my probably the best way to describe it would be sort of my missional edge Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is I um because of the journey I went on and because of the journey of so many people uh that I know friends um who who had similar journeys and and I know you guys can relate as well um I just you know when I think about my involvement and participation in the life of the local church, not just as a pastor and as a leader in the church, but just as a participating member of the body. Uh, For me, almost always, you know, I can't help but think through um, a missional lens. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is the mission of the church, I believe, in so many ways is to invite people, to come to know, love, and follow Jesus faithfully. And that's a formational process, you know. Uh, it's not. I grew up thinking that being a Christian meant you um, went up to the front during the altar call that one time, and then there you go. Boom, you're done, mm-hmm. right? Like you got your ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory yeah. called <laughs> Heaven. And now you can just kind of like do life as you please, right. and then when right. you die, you go to heaven. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for me in my early twenties, again, when I sort of re-engaged my faith, um, because of different things I was reading and conversations I was having very quickly, that motif was deconstructed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what I've found is that the invitation to the life of following Jesus is actually a much richer, far more robust and, in many ways, a much more beautiful uh, and compelling invitation than the invitation I received when I was a kid. And so I'm really interested in um, in, in offering that invitation to as many as I can in ways, in language and, and with a particular aesthetic and, and all those things, in ways that are um, conducive to uh, uh, compelling, especially emerging generations um, to, to consider saying yes to Jesus, you know? So the regeneration project is a big part of that, you know, for us, I think one of the things we've wrestled with, with quite a bit is that particularly in the digital age, because we have so much information, um, access to so much information, that's not always good information. It's just, you know, stuff that's out there. Um, it's all the more important now, to invite people to consider deeply and thoughtfully Mm. uh, what's actually happening in God's unfolding story. And so that's where the Mm. Regeneration Project comes from. We just try to tackle tough questions that people are asking about faith and life and Jesus and the church and the Bible. So uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Definitely my experience sort of shapes all of that. Mm.
0: Well, I I almost think that's kind of it's both unavoidable and it's a good thing. I know yeah. for me, like, I, I mean, I grew up in hardcore and punk and every time I'm thinking through church, I'm, I'm thinking, obviously trying to think through a biblical lens, but I'm also yeah. thinking through like, how do I reach like my friends for right. Jesus? What are the questions my yeah. friends are asking? Uh, what are, how, how would my friends respond to this move? If our church makes this move, how, how are the people in the circles I run in going to see it and receive it? What's going to obscure the gospel? What's going to clarify it? And and I think that's a, I mean, it's part of how God sort of weaves our personal narrative into the fabric of, of the kingdom and, and helps us to see people that other, other people with different experiences might not. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you're, you're doing the right thing. I I think it's all the more important. Um, It's been true for every generation, but particularly for our generation, for this generation, because of the unique time uh in which we find ourselves this cultural moment there's just a convergence of so many different things um uh, we just have to pay attention to that you know how are people seeing and hearing the thing that we're trying to share with the world if we're not mindful of that then we're going to come across um totally you know tone deaf to what's happening in the world and and using language that just doesn't make sense for people and, and that's just not effective
1: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we were drawn to your book, Analog Church, because you, you pose a sort of a kind of a stance on how the church engages with technology and the modern world right now and what our role is in that. So let's get into the book. We wanted to ask to someone who maybe is not familiar with some of these terms. What would you describe as an analog church?
0: Right. Because I I mean, I would say like we go to record stores and we're like analog is vinyl because we,
1: you know, (laughs) yeah. We kind of grew up with that, we know, yeah. but there are a lot of listeners who might not. So if you could explain that to someone, how, how would you explain it?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, by analog, I mean, um, and I know analog, the word has some elasticity of meaning, but um, what I mean by analog simply is what I think is the baseline meaning of analog, meaning physical, tactile, embodied reality. Uh, The theological way to think about it would be incarnational, right? Mm -hmm. That big fancy theological Mm -hmm. word that means in the flesh. It's a word we use to describe God sending Jesus, his son, as as a human child, you know, born of the Virgin Mary. So um, by analog, that's what I mean. Embodied, physical, tactile, incarnational reality. So by analog church, what I mean against the backdrop of the digital age, which is Mm. uh, primarily a disembodied reality, its technologies are primarily disembodied. What I mean by analog church is church as a physical, tactile, embodied, incarnational, showing up shoulder to shoulder sort of reality. Uh, so that's what I'm getting at um, by, by that term and the idea of the entire book.
0: So I'm I'm sure that people will hear that and think, okay, so he, you know, he played in bands and he runs a, or helps run this website and mm-hmm. this uh, blog full of resources and he, he hosts a yeah, podcast. Podcasts. And so, so much of what you're doing is digital. How, how did you reach this? Uh, how did you come to this perspective? What prompted you to write this book? How does that kind of relate to uh, some, some of the ways that you are doing ministry in a digital sense?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Travis. I, I First of all, I'll say, you know, the irony is not lost on me. So much of my work is digital. And, you know, as we're recording this in mid-June, at least in my part of the country, um, we're still sheltering in place because of COVID-19. Right. Yeah. You know, so all of our church stuff now is digital. Yeah. Right. For like three months. So, so the irony is certainly not lost on me. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, I, I've been asked this question by some other folks uh, in interviews and such, um, a lot of people assume just based on the title of the book and the subtitle of the book that maybe I'm arguing for, um, you know, the eradication of all digital technologies and right, suggesting yeah. that everybody becomes a Luddite or and turn your own butter or something. Yeah, choir
0: yeah. music only. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: but that's not it at all. Right. Yeah. That's not what that's came not across in yeah. reading it. Yeah. 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 That's not at all what I'm saying. I, I in fact, um, as my life displays. Am in many ways very grateful for digital technologies, and utilize digital technology in my own life. You know, you and I—we're—we're we're having this conversation, right. yeah, you know, on opposite ends of the country, right. yeah. because of digital technology, and that's a beautiful, wonderful gift. All I'm um, suggesting is that digital technologies, like all technologies, and like all things, all tools in life, really have the potential to be both helpful and harmful. And the difference there has everything to do with how we leverage the technology Mm. and the sort of influence and um, position of power we allow the technology to have in our lives. So Mm. all I'm suggesting is that digital technologies, particularly when it comes to the way we think about what it means to be the church, Mm -hmm. uh, again, it can be, it is very helpful When we place and leverage and utilize these technologies appropriately, but when we allow them to take precedence over, again, tactile, physical, embodied realities of what it means to be the church, um, then that which was once helpful can very quickly become harmful. So Mm -hmm. that's the differentiation there. We can get more into that if you'd like, but um, hopefully that sort of explains my, my approach.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that we've kind of been talking through is when it comes to worship and the way that we've had to do church, especially in the past few months, technology has really changed the way that we do things. It it can be really helpful, but at the same time, it could be harmful. So in your experience, what are some ways that this can be good, simply stated, and how can it be bad?
2: That's a great question. You know, I think the first thing I'll say is I, I don't necessarily think it's it's monolithic. So what mm-hmm. I mean by that is I don't think that there's just like one specific, uh, you know, how-to manual or a set of rules that every church needs to apply in specific detail when it comes to their leveraging and utilization of digital technology. But I will say on a macro level, a couple of things. One Um, the most helpful differentiation for me has been to think about the difference between digital and analog as the difference between information and transformation. Mm. And what I mean by that is I think that digital technologies are not only good tools, but great tools for informing people. Um, In fact, digital can in some ways be more effective when it comes to the exchange of information uh, than even analog realities. Sure. And one of sure. the reasons for that is because of its efficiency, its speed, um, yeah. sure. the, the fact that we can be precise in some specific ways uh, digitally that maybe we fail to be in analog. It's a little bit messier when you're in person sometimes. Sure. So one of the things I tell church leaders all the time is you know, way to think about it is that when uh, you are thinking of informing your people, getting information to your people, by all means, leverage digital all you want, you know? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to transformation, the stuff of life that really changes us, shapes us, molds us more and more into the image of the risen Christ together, I think that reality can only be fully experienced in analog. It can only be fully experienced Um, When we're shoulder to shoulder, in person, embodied, again, the theological term incarnational. So getting back to your question, Nikki, about worship specifically, you know, I think right now in the midst of sheltering in place and all churches going digital, we're feeling this on a very visceral level, Um, you know, singing at home as you watch the worship team on your screen, whether it's your television or your computer It just falls so dramatically short Mm -hmm. of being in the room with people. Absolutely, one of the reasons for that is um, the screen is—it's a medium that, by its very nature, is is pervading content for us to consume. Mm. Uh, rather than inviting us to creatively participate in an action. No matter what you say, the reality is when you watch a thing on a digital screen, no matter how much you try to participate, your participation feels like it's a little bit lacking because Mm -hmm. the human exchange isn't quite happening in a real way. I mean, even us right now, we're having this conversation on Zoom and we can see each other, but there's something Uh, that is short of, like, our most human interaction. Like, if we were having this conversation instead with a cup of coffee at a coffee shop or in your office, there would be a difference in sort of the embodied experience of being in the room together. It would actually affect the flow of our conversation even in yeah. some ways you know and, and our our sense of connection and empathy and and belonging with one another that's absolutely true when it comes to the worshiping life of the church you know it, it, there is no replacement no substitute for being in a room and singing together yeah. which we can't do right now you know right yeah. coronaviruses and the droplets of our saliva or something (laughs) whatever it is right so until we figure that out we can't do it but it's so important for us I think right now to lean into that longing you know when you miss that experience to pay attention to how deeply you miss that experience Mm -hmm. so that when that experience is available to us again we can re-engage Uh, with a newfound appreciation and a deeper sense of longing and desire for that, which we've always needed, you know, which is to be in the room together as much as possible. Yeah.
0: It's so funny that you you mentioned that because we, like I just got out of a pastor and director's meeting where we were kind of talking through, okay, what have we learned? What's been good over the last few months? and, And what do we need to approach with some discernment? And essentially everything you just said is what we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, There were people in the room who said, you know, it's, it's been great, but it, I don't feel as compelled to sing when I'm in a, in a, in my living room by myself. And so there's something lacking in worship. And one of the other things we talked about is that forms are not neutral. The way that you communicate a message has an effect on how you're conformed or deformed from that message. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of Jamie Smith's big point in your, which you love. That's kind of his big impulse, but screens normally convey information and entertainment mm-hmm. and whereas an embodied interaction does something different to us and so it's it, it, it's a fascinating thing to think about i think your your distinction is so important that if you're trying to inform screens are great but if you're trying to conform transform. and transform then then the the method itself is working against that goal in a lot of ways
2: yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and um, Jamie Smith, who you mentioned in that book, You Are What You Love, he's got this fantastic line he says all human beings, he calls them liturgical animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what he means by that is essentially what he, what he intends to mean in the book is that we're formed by our liturgies. And liturgy is this fancy word that we think of just like high church and people in robes, mm-hmm. but we all we're all liturgical. It, it, the totally. word literally just means the work of the people. Yep. And in Christian theology, it simply means like the work, the practices, the habits that we participate in, which form and shape us. And then he says, human beings are all liturgical animals, which which means we all have practices and habits which are forming us. And then he has this Mm -hmm. fantastic line. He says, every human lives leaning forward. Like you are leaning toward a particular end. You have no choice in that matter. The only choice we have is which direction to Mm. lean in. You know, and you're exactly right, Travis. I, I love the way you said it. Like screens are by their very nature as a medium. They are intended to entertain us, to inform us, to, to um, throw content that we can consume. And you're exactly right. I think that that, um, ca- that works. Uh, it's counterintuitive mm-hmm. to Christian worship, mm. which is not the consumption of content. It's certainly not entertainment. It's participation in a formational process of becoming like Christ together. One of my greatest hopes is because the reality is even in analog uh, worship settings, many of us still thought of worship as entertainment. Mm. We still Mm. thought of it as content to be consumed. I don't think we thought about it that way intellectually, Mm -hmm. but we postured ourselves in such a way we would show up to church. So many of us before all of this We'd physically show up to a church and we just kind of hands in pockets, maybe gently swing side to side, mm-hmm. consuming the music from the professionals on the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, Mickey, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, right, leading worship. Yeah. Stuff. Like, you're, you're the frustration of the worship leader seeing people just like, no, you're not supposed to be watching and listening. You're supposed, yeah. be you're supposed to be participating. Yeah, participating, yep. creating together. I'm really hopeful that because of this season, when we get back together, the lid might be blown off of that, yeah. It, because we've been so long, so far removed from those participatory environments. I hope our people show up and they just like they can't wait to sing, yeah, yeah. And drown out the band, you know, right? Yeah. To, to create it together. So. Yeah,
1: that's been our prayer too. I mean, as so we had been taping our services and the past couple of weeks, we had the opportunity to invite some of our members to come and worship with us at a limited oh, cool. capacity. So that was yeah. really nice. And then our... Our first Sunday morning service will be this week because that's oh, kind okay. of the what the state has been allowing us to do. So yeah. we've been following the guidelines and all that. And so we're mm-hmm. really excited to get the chance and we're really blessed to get the chance to be able to do this so soon. While there's still people in other parts of the country that aren't able to right now. So our prayer has been... You know, this moment that we've been waiting for, that people would be longing to come together again. And so far, that's, you know, been the reaction that we've seen with people who have been able to come in or have expressed that they're looking forward to coming in and and participating in worship again. So that's been a really big prayer for us is that we wouldn't just be conformed to, well, now we can watch church online. This yeah. is great and keep going. Right. Um, but rather that people would be inclined to uh, just that longing of being able to participate as members yeah. of the church together. So we really liked the point um, that you make in your book about how we can use technology to inform, but it takes much more to transform. And one of the ways that we do that as believers is we lean into our community. And so community is kind of a buzzword. It's a lot like authenticity. We hear it a lot. <laughs> um, but we just kind of yeah. wanted to know what, what marks an analog church approach to community and the way that it forms believers.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think Christian community is um, counterintuitive to the way we understand community in the modern world, and in particular in the late modern and postmodern, hyper-individualistic uh, Western world. When we think about community here and now in the year 2020 in America and in North America, we mostly think about um, surrounding ourselves with people we like, who like us, and people not only that we like who like us, but people who are like us, that we are also like. Uh, people who fit our personal preferences, our um, unique quirks, our sort of worldviews, um, sociopolitical views, you know, all, all those yeah. sorts of, Of things. And Christian community uh, is not just, I don't think it's just like, you know, by chance it happens to be counterintuitive to that, but rather by intention, Christian community is actually counter to that model of community. Christian community is by its nature the coming together of unlikely people people who are not like each other, people who uh, don't have all of the same worldviews, people who don't have all of the same perspectives and quirks and likes and dislikes, you know, and Mm. um, people might say, well, like when I read the Bible, it seems like at least early on, uh, you know, it's like the people of God are all, they all share one sort of ethnic, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. background and they're all children of Abraham. So what are you talking about here? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, the Bible is a library of 66 books that's an unfolding story. And so what we find by the time we get to Jesus, and in particular after his death, resurrection, and ascension, as we read in Acts and all of the letters of the apostles, we, we begin to see the formation of Christian community that is very much driven in, in many ways um, the, you know the scandal of Christian community in the early days was the fact that these unlikely people mm. who previously not only did not have much in common but actually had antagonism toward one another, yeah. were now being brought together, bound up right. together in the singular family of God. And we see that modeled by Jesus himself. you know when he um, gathers those 12 young men to be his you know what we call his disciples, uh, his, his closest compatriots sort of journeying with him during his earthly ministry, he brings together like really unlikely people, you yeah, know, textiles, right? who would have been at each other's throats in the first century Jewish world. And right. so, um, I love, uh, the theologian Scott McKnight. I, I love his phrase. He has a title of a book called the fellowship of difference and he doesn't mean like difference, like, you know, um, the differences between us he means difference like we're all different we're mm-hmm. all different types of people yeah and yet we are called into this fellowship bound up together into the family of god together so i think that's what christian community looks like
1: yeah, yeah. and
2: in order to um dive deep into that sort of calling to to live communally with one another there's some real de- deconstruction that's going to have to happen to our late modern western individualistic yeah uh, ways and tendencies, you know, and that's really hard to do. It's hard for me. Yeah. You know, I would much rather in and of myself, I would much rather hang out with people that are like me, you know, right. and sure. the same way I do. That's, that's not the way God shapes us and, and makes us one. Yeah. Um, so, and it's hard to do, but it's so crucially important.
1: I agree. And and I really love the illustration that you use about your kids in part two of Analog Church. When you're talking about community, you talk about your son and your daughter and how they are siblings and not by choice, that's just what happened. And I'll quote this part of your book and and you say, they will forever be brother and sister because of this connection between them, which they did not choose. The only choice now they that they have now is how they will navigate the bounded reality of their kinship. So it is with the family of God. The church, we are bound to one another. We did not choose it, we were saved into it. And the only choice we have now is how we will care for and cultivate this kinship. And I think that just sums it up so beautifully and um, accurately, because it's through the work of Jesus that we are united into his church. And whether or not we use technology and how we use it and the means by which we connect with one another, it's so important to tend to this kinship. And I really like that you highlighted that in this portion.
0: Well, it also makes me kind of think about the way that technology might be forming or deforming our approach to something like that. Because right. when it comes to friends on social media, we do actually curate those friends. Right. Uh, we, right. And, and we
1: pick we pick and choose who we we're going to be choose. friends with.
0: And very often, I like I'm not on social media anymore, but I would see people say, I believe X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, unfriend me. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. unhit yourself from me and unbind yourself from me, which yeah. is, I guess, fine on Facebook or Instagram, but in the community of the church, That's not how that uh, works. You, you can't do <laughs> you it can't. that way. And so, yeah. so, well, I don't think social media is a bad thing at all. I, th- I think it's an incredible resource. If we allow that to form our conception of what community is, community will always be something we select for ourselves rather than something God has selected for us in who he saved by the spirit and brought into the church.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's well said. You know, there's a whole, uh, you know, there's a whole movement now of like cancel culture, which I'm sure you guys are familiar Mm -hmm. with. People are just like, it's exactly what you're saying. Somebody says a thing and, and granted, often the thing they said online is like really toxic and ugly. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So I get it, right? I get it. But I'm just to comment on, on the culture, the, the ideology of cancel culture itself I mean, it just exposes exactly what you said. We live in a a world, particularly in the digital age, where it's so easy to cancel people, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's just a swipe of a button, you know, Mm -hmm. or like a push of a button or a swipe or something, and you've canceled them, type a couple of words, and boom, they're done. I just don't think that that belongs in a Christian ethic. Mm. You know, like Jesus had people who... I mean, he, literally the absolute worst, right? Arrest, uh, torture, and crucifixion and death. And yet he still is compelled to um, call us to love our enemies, you know? Mm. So and i think that's one of the beautiful and difficult and necessary works of christian community we gather up in a place with people who are totally unlike us and it's really hard to cancel people when you're face to face
1: you know it's right. easy
2: online but what are you going to do when you're face to face i mean here you are you're not mm-hmm. like each other but here you are yeah. you know
1: I just think that's so
2: crucially important. Absolutely.
1: No, definitely. And and I know in this age that we're in right now where we have access to social media and things like that, especially in our context right now in the past few months, we've kind of had to depend on that, especially while, you know, you're in shelter in place and you can't physically hang out with people and, and connect that way. The only thing we've been given a choice yeah, over his. is
0: who we zoom call. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, yeah. so we wanted to talk to you about social media and ways to connect with people online, especially in the time that we're in right now. Um, do you think that there is a responsible way to use social media and w- just without making it ultimate without making it okay, well I have this and now I this don't have to actually community. hang out. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I, I know we're in a unique time. So we're definitely having to push the bounds, uh, you know, the boundaries of uh, social media and and online technologies for sure. And I'm not against that. You know, at our our church, we're doing the same. It's like, certainly our, you know, summer um, school of theology classes, which were always in person, Mm -hmm. is it ideal that we're doing them over Zoom? No. But is it better than not doing them we've decided yes you know so even that it's like well aren't you then betraying the whole idea of transformation over (laughs) digital like well yes and no i think that yeah probably but but we're also aware that what we're doing is not ideal but we're gonna at least do it so that there's something and um, going back to that point, like we understand that primarily what's going to happen is probably information. We're going to inform people mm-hmm. through these our digital classes, Zoom classes, and then try to equip them with uh, resources to to practice some of the stuff we're discussing in the classes mm. in their everyday lives at home, you know, and um more than anything, our hope is that what it'll do is just drive the desire and longing to be in a room together when that's made available to us. Um, but along those lines, in terms of leveraging social media, I would still say it's still, it still applies. I mean, social media, I think is primarily, you know, it's best utilized as a medium to inform people. And, um, by inform, I mean like truly information. You know what I don't think social media is good at. Although so many people try to leverage social media this way, I don't think it's good at convincing people mm. or changing people's minds.
0: So true. I, I
2: I don't think it's a great place to to try to have uh, nuanced dialogue full of generosity and charity and openness yeah i just don't think it's a good place for those things because of its limitations because we don't have um the exchange of presence we only have the exchange of 280 characters right Right. there's very little that you can actually communicate in 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 such ways so uh, you know if if I could say anything to folks listening, that's probably the thing I would say. I think it's perfectly fine to leverage social media but know its limitations. Mm. and probably the best thing to do is to, to primarily leverage it as a means of exchanging information. Um, at the same time, you know, I, i'm I'll readily admit in some ways it is it is a good thing to be able to keep some folks up to date on your life, you know sure, it's yeah. like yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure, I'm happy to see that photo of your son who just graduated high school and you had a little drive-through graduation at your school. Mm -hmm. That's a fun little thing, you know? Yeah. Um, But it's not trying to convince me to change my mind on anything. It's not trying to sway me or compel me in one direction or another. You know, you're not trying to, yeah, you're not just trying to do any of that stuff. You're just kind of keeping me up to date. In some mm-hmm. ways, it's a form of information. You're informing me mm-hmm. on the details of your life until we can get together and exchange our presence with one another and really dive deeper into those things. So um, I guess those are yeah, those are a couple of things I would say yeah. about social media. That's
1: very yeah. practical.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's
1: good to keep that in mind.
0: So so I wanted to kind of follow around. I know our In the beginning of our conversation, um, we talked about the fact that you are, you know, passionate about seeing kind of the next generation engage with the gospel and and hear it afresh. And I know so often as some of the ideas we've been talking about get brought up in Christian circles, there is this fear for maybe the older generation that what the younger generation actually wants and what they maybe even need to hear the gospel is sort of a high-tech church that's current Mm -hmm on all of these things. Uh, what's your experience been like that? I mean, you're, you're directly working on ministering to college students, Gen X, not, not Gen X, Gen Z and, uh, and millennials. Do you feel like that's what they're looking for as a church with an incredible Instagram account and really cool (laughs) laser lights or what, what's been your experience there?
2: Yeah. My experience has again, been counterintuitive to what we would assume. Um, now, I don't want to take it too far. Certainly, younger generations, emerging generations are on social media. They, they leverage digital technologies. A way to say it is that they are digital natives, particularly Gen Z and younger. Mm-hmm. They're digital natives, meaning they were born into a world where their first memories of life include digital technologies as a regular everyday part of life, which
0: is unbelievable. Cause I didn't have a cell phone until I was like 17.
2: Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. <that's>, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I didn't have a cell phone until college. Yeah. I had a pager before that. <laughs> that's nice. incredible. I hope you kept pager. that. Yeah. I remember paging people, uh, you know, pager code. I don't know if you ever did that. Like four, three, seven, seven, zero oh. would be hello. Cause it would look like, hello. Oh, oh right. 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 That's how old I am. I still still remember those days. But, you know, like Gen Z and younger are digital natives, so they certainly live in digital spaces. So in some ways, yes, I think that there is a benefit to at least being present in digital spaces.
1: Mm.
2: However, I don't think That the benefit of being in in digital spaces is as great as we think. I I think that digital spaces, particularly for Gen Z and younger, when it comes to the church, they're good initiating spaces or invitational spaces, which again, comes down to information, Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, this is where we gather. This is when we gather. This is what we do or what it looks like when we gather. We would love to have you. But when those people, emerging generations, Gen Z and younger, show up to your actual physical space, Mm -hmm. what they are not looking for from from everything I've read, everything I've experienced, every conversation Mm -hmm. I've had, what they are not looking for is for their church experience to resemble or to be relevant Mm -hmm. to the entirety of their digital life. Yeah. They're not showing up because they're hoping that the church service looks, sounds, and feels like everything they see on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, That's not what they're looking for. If they take the risk to show up to a gathering of Jesus people in a particular place, whether they know it or not, what they're looking for is something transcendent yes. in other words yes. something that transcends and feels totally counter to and is absolutely other than the everyday constant mm. barrage of digital content that they see in, in feel and hear and experience all the time yes I love Um, that point
1: that you make the transcendence oh I loved that because it's so mm, true mm, it's so mm. true and I want to bring up the story of your friend Jake that you talked about Mm. the the EDM artist and it's his experience is exactly what you're saying he walked into a church that was that sort of we call them Uh, rave churches our friend
0: Angela calls it a rave church (laughs) (laughs) and he walked in
1: there and he was like you know, they're trying to replicate what I do for my job. That's not yeah. what I'm looking for. So it, you know,
0: maybe you is- can fill in the the bits about your friend, Jake, but we love that story. Yeah. yeah, We really, yeah. Love it. yeah.
2: yeah. It's the story I opened the book with uh, my friend, Jake. That's his real name. Not everybody in the book. <laughs> I use their real name, but okay. him, that's his real name. Uh, he's a, he's a pretty, I won't use his EDM name. Cause I don't want to like, yeah. he's actually a pretty well-known like global touring EDM like when i look at his sometimes he'll he'll text me photos it's like yo i'm in china today playing a show and it's like a field with ten thousand. chinese was yeah. like what who are you what is happening yeah this is what he does right just laser lights and big thumping beats and 808s yeah. and all of yeah. that right it's like crazy mm-hmm. and he showed up he's he doesn't follow jesus anymore I think he'd probably consider himself an agnostic um, at this point, but his family still goes to church. And so when he's in town, he lives in L.A. now, but when, he's still, when he comes back to town, he'll go to church sometimes with his family. He went to a church that was, like you said, a rave church, You know, a church that like does exactly what an EDM concert tries yeah. to do. Um, for the sake of trying to reach young people, right? He walks in, and it just, to him, it feels, these are his words, it felt just like a sort of a lame knockoff version of what he does professionally all mm-hmm. the time. And what he said to me was, dude, this is not what church should be like. And then he said these words verbatim. I still have the text. He said, I didn't feel cool enough to be there which Mm -hmm. is so mind-blowing.
0: Because he's cooler than all of them.
2: (laughs) he's like cooler than all of us, (laughs) right? right? And what he means by that is that when he shows up to a church, he's not showing up as like the EDM artist guy. Yeah, Mm. He's showing up as an insecure, desperate for hope, 27-year-old kid who's looking for something that he can't find anywhere else. Mm. And when he shows up in that vulnerable state, And the thing he experiences is just like the thing he does professionally. For him, he's not showing up as that guy. That's not what he's looking for. And I think that that's true for most young people. um and i don't want to say all but from my experience for most younger generations and we have to be mindful of that so older churches like getting back to your original question who are like we don't know how to do the facebook thing and how do we we feel really uncool and we don't have like a great band i actually think you have some stuff that is so different than everything else younger generations experience, if you just open yourself up and make slight adjustments to welcome them in Mm. um, with warmth rather than coolness, uh, you have an opportunity before you that you may not even be aware of. Yeah.
0: So as as we kind of wrap up this conversation and we kind of are landing on this theme of transcendence, um, I would love it if you could just kind of cast a vision for what what it would look like for the church to recapture transcendence and, and, and to to take some of these practices you've written about in an Analog Church and really apply them and, and recapture that otherworldliness of Christianity.
2: Hmm. Yeah, there's so much there, um, Travis, that we can get into. It's such a great question. I guess one of the things I would say is in the digital age, what almost all of the mediums we use, online technologies and mediums, particularly social media, but just anything on the internet, most of the time what they're trying to do is to grab our attention. Their goal is to commodify our attention to keep us um, clicking and scrolling, right? And that's a commodity in the digital age. That's how companies make money is if we continue to scroll, continue to swipe, continue to click. And so because of that, everything is becoming increasingly more and more attention-grabbing. And I think for the church, to invite people into transcendence is not to vie for their attention, but to actually vie to capture their imagination. And to captivate imagination is actually, it's so counter- to grabbing people's attention. If I want to grab your attention, I'm gonna put something out there that's very clickbaity. Yeah, you know, some like article title that's like, "Whoa!" Like uh-huh. that sounds controversial all or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah, all caps, and exclamation mark, yeah. and pop art. You know, whatever. Um, but I think to to grab someone's imagination, to captivate someone's imagination. One is far, it's much more difficult work um, because you risk not holding their attention, right? Because imagination is a much deeper reality, uh, you're not going to put something out there that's just in big, broad, blinking lights with exclamation marks you're going to actually have a much more subtle and long view approach to the invitation, and, and thereby risking that they may not, they may not linger with you long enough for you to actually capture their imagination. But I think when you do, when we do captivate their imagination, the reality is uh, that's the path to transcendent spaces. And here's the opportunity before us, Because everything in our lives is vying for our attention, almost everybody I know at certain moments needs a reprieve. They need a breather from, like right now, you know, there's a lot being written about digital fatigue. People are just like so exhausted by Mm -hmm. being online all the time. And um, that's been true even long before COVID-19. We just didn't name it as well. Right. Um, and weren't aware of it as much. So as a church community, if we can just be consistent in terms of offering opportunities to captivate people's imagination, taking the long view, inviting them not to like big bright blinking lights, but rather to nuance and beauty and generosity, stuff that takes longer. You can imagine like, instead of binge watching a netflix show it's like taking a long slow steady stroll through a museum Mm -hmm. you know um uh uh, several months ago before covid19 my wife and i were in chicago for something and I, i distinctly remember we had this big long schedule of like like different restaurants we wanted to go and grab food at, you know? And so we're like on our phone, we're just like Ubering from place to place and walking. We're just jamming around. And then we had this schedule uh, on our schedule. We had this like three hour block um, where we were going to go to the Art Institute Museum in Chicago, which is like one of the greatest museums in the world. And I remember we spent, I think it was two hours at the museum. Those two hours felt shorter than the 45 minutes we spent before that zooming from place to like jamming from place to mm. place, you know, using Uber and our phone and Google maps, mm. like the slow stroll through this museum, losing ourselves in, you know, Andy Warhol paintings mm. and you know, Lichtenstein yeah. and, and uh, David Hockney is just like, this is a beautiful sort of pace to that experience that was so different than everything else. That's what the church can and must do in the digital language invite people to, to captivate their imagination via, via a slow and steady stroll. It takes longer, but is much more deep.
1: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Stone Table. If you have enjoyed this episode with our friend Jay as much as we did, please be sure to rate and subscribe. We'd also love to hear from you. If you've got any questions or any topics that you would love to hear discussed on the show, please feel free to send us an email at baylife.org. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table.